Our passage this morning is uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We'll be looking at verses 17 through 34. You can find that on page number 1784. Hear the word of the Lord. Paul, writing to the church in Corinth, says, In the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and to some extent, I believe it. No doubt, there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat. For as you eat, each of you goes ahead without waiting for anybody else. One remains hungry, another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you for this? Certainly not. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. A man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. But if we judged ourselves, we would not come under judgment. When we are judged by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be condemned with the world. So then, my brothers... When you come together to eat, wait for each other. If anyone is hungry, he should eat at home, so that when you meet together, it may not result in judgment. And when I come, I will give further directions. This is the word of the Lord. Well, this morning we are in our third and final uh, sermon in our brief three-week sermon series on the purpose and the practice of the Lord's Supper Uh, Two weeks ago, we looked at what a church is, and we saw that a church is a visible uh, expression of the universal church that Christ is building. Uh, This group of people that gathers together in the local church, they all believe the historic Christian faith that was once and for all uh, delivered uh, to God's holy people, as Jude says. 
And then they live lives that flow out of that faith. So their, their beliefs and their Christian behaviors are the same. Their life and their doctrine. And then we said we could recognize this church because uh, a true church will um, uh, preach the true gospel. And by doing so, they shape life and doctrine. We also said that we could recognize a true church because members of a true church will hold each other accountable to that life and doctrine uh, through church discipline. Or we could just simply call that discipleship. You notice discipleship and discipline come from the same root word. And then last week we saw uh, that we can also recognize a true church when they properly administer the sacraments, which are baptism and the Lord's Supper. And so these are signs that point to the fact that a specific group of people believes those things and behaves in that way. It's a, it's a sign that points to a group of people who have covenanted together to share that life and that doctrine. These are signs that define the covenant community. And so baptism, we said, was the sign uh, that, uh, of the covenant for children of believers who are entering into the covenant community. So that sign points forward to the faith that those children will have. The Lord's Supper, on the other hand, is the sign of those who do have faith. So it points to the faith that we actually do have. Like we just read in 1 Corinthians, when we partake of this meal, we proclaim Christ's death until he comes. Uh, so the sacraments then seal and authenticate and assure us of God's love for us in Christ, his promise to forgive us and to cleanse us from our sins and to write his law on our hearts. And as a meal, the Lord's Supper actually feeds us and it nourishes us in our faith because as we all know, this is a very long life. There are many doubts that we suffer, many trials and temptations that we experience. And so just like God gave manna, to the Israelites for 40 years in the wilderness to sustain them as he brought them into the promised land, so he gives us this meal to sustain us in the wilderness of this life uh, as he is bringing us into the ultimate promised land. Finally, we said the Lord's Supper unites a particular church together as one body. So uh, one image of the Lord's Supper is of the actual body and blood of Jesus, and another image of Christ's body is the church. And so in communion, this image of Christ's actual body and the image of Christ's body as the church are, are united. And through partaking of this meal together, we are united together as a community. So how does a church practice the Lord's Supper? And so uh, really to answer that question, we're going to take the, what we talked about in the last two weeks and, and kind of put it together. Uh, we said it in the first uh, sermon that a church practices the Lord's Supper. Uh, we didn't really say that, but that's what I was pointing to. And then last week we learned what the Lord's Supper is. And so um, what we're going to see today is that a church practices the Lord's Supper by practicing it as a church with a proper respect for what the Lord's Supper is. So Paul opens our passage today. He says, in the following directives, I have no praise for you. For your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. And to some extent, I believe it. No doubt, there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. So Paul hasn't gotten to it yet, but even in these verses, he is talking about the Lord's Supper. 
And notice the Lord's Supper is meant to be taken at your meetings. The next verse, he calls those meetings, when you come together as a church. And so this particular church, they had uh, divisions and differences that they were having to sort out in order to determine who had God's approval. Or another way of saying it, to determine uh, who was really truly part of this church. And we saw two weeks ago that this is what a church has to do. This is part of what a church is. A church is a place where a defined group of people share belief and behavior. They share life and doctrine. And if that's the case, one thing a church must do is deal with their differences and their divisions. Are these differences merely just opinions that we can agree to disagree on? Or are these differences and divisions substantive, so important that if we actually differ on something, one has God's approval and the other does not? That's what Paul's saying here. And he's saying that there actually have to be these divisions among us in order to show who has God's approval and who does not. Well, who, who's going to sort that out? Who, who's going to be the one to figure out which one of these divisions are just mere opinions that don't really matter at the end of the day? And which one of these divisions and differences actually render somebody in a situation where they no longer have God's approval? Well, that's why God has given... Uh, two things, I would say church membership and, and elders to the church. The elders are the ones who are called to shepherd God's flock. They are called to um, care for the sheep that are among them. They actually, in uh, Hebrews thirteen seventeen, I don't have this verse on the screen, uh, but the writer of the Hebrews says that the leaders of the church are there to care for our souls. It says they're watching over our souls. And one of the ways that the elders of the church watch over our souls is, is being, having the responsibility to determine where these lines are drawn and which one of the differences renders somebody in a situation where they no longer have God's approval and that they don't. And then we have church membership, right? Because church membership really is how we define those who have the life and the doctrine that accords with the Christian faith. And again, the elders are the ones who admit people into church discipline or into church membership by saying, yes, your life and your doctrine accords with the historic Christian faith. And the elders, unfortunately, at times, find themselves in situations where they have to come to somebody and say, hey, your life and your doctrine no longer accord with the Christian faith. And so this is a weighty, weighty responsibility, but yet God in his grace and his mercy has given elders to the church in order to do this very, very difficult work. Um, and then I kind of got off my notes here, but the next verse here um, is from Jude. And Jude calls it the faith that was once for all entrusted to God's holy people. So there is a, defaith, a, a definite, clear faith. There is a specific faith that has beliefs and practices that go along with it that God has entrusted to his people. And God has given church leaders to be the ones to sort out those differences and those divisions. So how do we practice the Lord's Supper? We practice it as a church, a clearly defined church that is led by church leaders and with a proper respect for what the meal is. Paul goes on. Look at verses 20 and 22. He says, So then... 
When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat. For when you are eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry, another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat in and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this matter. So what we see here is that it's possible to think that we are taking the Lord's Supper when we actually are not. Remember, we have to take it as a church, and apparently we also have to know what it is. We don't get to just eat bread and wine however we want, whenever we want, and with whoever we want, and call it the Lord's Supper. No, this is a certain meal, and it must be taken in a certain way as a church with a proper respect for what the meal is. Notice one of the reasons Paul says that their meal in Corinth was not the Lord's Supper is because they were not eating it together as a church. The problem in Corinth was you had these rich people who were going on and eating the meal by themselves. And we know that because in verse 22, uh, Paul says that they were despising the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing, which is a reference to the poor. And so they were excluding the poor people and they were going on with this meal by themselves. So this meal, it must be taken when the church gathers together as a church in a meeting And it must be taken with everyone at the same time. This is why we are very, in the church historically, has been very intentional about making sure that we distribute the elements and then we partake at the exact same time. Um, When a youth group goes on a mission trip and they take, they eat bread and grape juice on the beach, that is not the Lord's Supper. That is a private supper because they've excluded the rest of the church. Just because the church doesn't know they've been excluded doesn't mean they haven't been excluded. When a married couple is getting married at their wedding and they turn and by themselves, they partake of bread and wine together, that is not the Lord's Supper. They've excluded the church. That is a private supper. And I must admit that when I got married almost 14 years ago, my wife and I did just that. We turned our backs to the congregation and we ate bread and drank wine uh, together as a, as a newly married couple. And it was a very sweet moment. It was a very sincere moment. Uh, we wanted nothing but to honor God in that moment. And yet, according to Paul here, we had excluded the church and we had turned it into a private supper. Therefore, it was not the Lord's Supper. Um, now, I don't, I don't think that our judgment... <laughs> because this passage will go on and talk about judgment with this matter, was as severe as it would have been for the Corinthians. Because the Corinthians, the sense that we have here in this passage is that Paul had instructed them on this, that they ought to have known better, right? And there was a massive disrespect to the supper that they were also doing. I don't think Anne and I disrespected the supper. But the point is, it's only the Lord's Supper when it's taken as a church with proper respect for what it is. So the Corinthians, what they were doing to disrespect the supper is they were, um, Paul talks about, the the senses here, they're overeating and getting drunk with it. So there's this like cheers in, back slapping, high five and good time that they're having with this supper that that is not, um, that doesn't go along with what is intended by the supper. 
And so then Paul goes on and he tells them what the supper is. And a lot of this is similar to what we talked about last week. Paul says, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So what happened on the night that Jesus was betrayed? Well, he was arrested. And then he was beaten and spit on. And then he was led through the streets carrying a Roman cross. And then he was brutally murdered on that cross. And so there's something inherently solemn about this meal. Because in partaking of this meal, we're remembering what happened to Jesus on the night that he was betrayed. But there's also something profoundly celebratory about this meal. Because our God loved us so much that he was willing to endure that in order to offer salvation to us. And so it's this, it's this tension with the supper where it's this, this solemn event where we remember that Jesus died. But at the same time, it's this celebratory event that we remember that he died for me. I remember one time uh, I, was in, I, was, I had sinned and I was repentant of that sin. And I remember taking the, the supper um, soon after this event in my life. And I was weeping as the elder was handing this to me. And I, and I wondered, I wonder what he's thinking of me, you know. But, but I kind of didn't care either. Because in that moment, what was happening was two things. Two things. One, this like deep sorrow over my sin and, and the reality of what I am. And yet at the very same time, the reality that I am forgiven and I am beloved by the God of the universe because of what he had done for me in Christ. And so joy and sorrow were totally intermingled in, the, in, in one moment in, in this meal. So we eat the supper as a church and with a proper respect for what the meal is. And if we don't, Paul says, God will discipline us. He goes on. He says, so then whoever eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ eat and drink judgment on themselves. That is why many among you are weak and sick and a number of you have fallen asleep. But if we were more discerning with regard to ourselves, we would not come under judgment. Nevertheless, when we are judged in this way by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be finally condemned with the world. Okay, nobody wants to be sinning against the body and the blood of Jesus. Not a single one of us does. And so Paul tells us how to ensure that we're not sinning against the body and the blood of Jesus. And the first thing he says is before we come to the table, we examine ourselves. And so in the context of 1 Corinthians 11, examining ourselves means we ask ourselves, am I taking this meal with the church? Or have we excluded some people in the church? That's an easy question to answer. 
The next question to ask ourselves is, am I taking this meal with a proper respect for what this meal is? And in the context of 1 Corinthians 11, that means, are we, you know, cheersing and high-fiving and getting drunk and being totally disrespectful with the meal? And historically, the Christian church has also believed that one of the ways that we can uh, partake of the meal in a disrespectful way is if we are in the midst of rampant, unrepentant sin. And that makes sense, right? That, that, that's read into this text a little bit, but, but I think it's clear that, that if we're disrespecting the meal by not living the life that that meal is a sign of, that that is a disrespect of uh, the Lord's Supper. Second, we ought to be able to discern the body. Now this either means, A, uh, we ought to be able to discern that these elements represent the body and the blood of Jesus that have been shed for us, or B, that taking this meal represents that I am part of the body of Christ. And you will find theologians who will fight vehemently on both sides of, of that debate. Uh, for myself personally, I believe it's talking about both the things. Because both things are inherent in the meal, right? When I'm, when I'm looking at this body and this blood, or this bread and this wine as representing the body and blood of Jesus, I'm thinking about the night he was betrayed, when he died for me, and I'm discerning that that's what those elements are pointing to. But I'm also discerning that, that I'm partaking of this meal with this body of believers that God and his grace is united together to, to help me live this life, to help me keep believing the things that I believe, and to help me keep doing the things that I know I ought to do that should flow from that life, because it's so hard to continue and to endure day in and day out with doubts and trials and temptations, right? So if we don't examine ourselves, though, and we're not discerning the body, then Paul says we're eating and drinking judgment on ourselves. Now, we're not eating and drinking final judgment in hell on ourselves. Uh, this is clearly believers that Paul is talking about. In verse 32, uh, he says that this judgment is discipline so that we are not finally condemned with the world. But the thing to note here is the discipline is severe. So it's so important that when we come to this meal, that we really do examine ourselves, that we really do discern the body. And the, the, the severity of the discipline it is Paul's way of helping us understand the necessity of the examination process and the importance of it. And actually, if I go back to what I said in the beginning, this is why it's so important to have elders. This is why it's so important to have church membership. Because when the elders of a church invite you to the table, when the elders of the church who God has charged uniquely with the responsibility of watching over our souls, when those people invite us to the table, then we can rest assured, oh yes, that I am, I am not eating and drinking judgment on myself. When those elders invite us to the table at a meeting of the church, when the whole church is gathered, we know that that part of the examination process has already been done by them, and I can come and just rejoice and celebrate in what Christ has done for me. And yes, we do examine ourselves, right? We do make sure that we're not being disrespectful with the meal. But one of the beauties is of a church is having those who have invited us to the table as part of that assurance process that we all need. 
And then Paul says very clearly in the last two verses how the Corinthians um, can eat it in a worthy uh, manner. He says, So then, my brothers and sisters, when you gather to eat, you should all eat together. Anyone who is hungry should eat something at home so that when you meet together, it may not result in judgment. So Paul's instructions are very simple. Uh, Make sure you eat together as a church. uh, And if you're hungry... (laughs) Go home and eat, right? Don't, don't use this as a time to, to satisfy your hunger. Uh, and in so doing, uh, you will treat this meal with the awe and the respect that it deserves um, and also be able to experience the heart of joy and gratitude that is, uh, that is part of it. So eat it as a church with a proper respect for what it is. So, why a series on the Lord's Supper? Many of you saw the email that went out on Friday. Uh, Many others of you saw the note that was placed into your boxes. And there may be a few who didn't, and uh, hopefully I'll be able to catch you up some. Um, When I was candidating for this position at Emmanuel, I knew that Emmanuel Church had invited children to come to um, the Lord's Supper. And so I shared with the search team, and I shared with the council in those interviews uh, it was my conviction um, that uh, someone should make a profession of faith before they are invited uh, to the Lord's Supper. Um, and, and a lot of that has to do with what I've talked about the last few weeks, that this meal is really a meal uh, that points to real and true faith. Um, the Catechism even says this. This is what we read earlier today. It says, This meal is for those who are displeased with themselves because of their sins but who nevertheless trust that their sins are pardoned and that their remaining weakness is covered by the suffering and death of Christ. So I will admit, though, that what I had pictured in my mind was that what Emmanuel Church was doing was as soon as babies were born, they were putting some wine into some bottles, shoving breadcrumbs down their throats, and giving them that sacrament, right? And so when I got here, I discovered that's not the case, uh, and I was actually very encouraged by that. I also found out Uh, that when I came on here as a pastor, um, that when the previous council had chosen to invite uh, children to the the Lord's Supper, they did so for a very good reason, and actually one that uh, I resonated with deeply when I uh, began to study the matter more closely. Uh, Prior to about 10 years ago, if you wanted to come to the communion table at a Christian Reformed church, you had to make a profession of faith. And there was a culture at that time that kind of grew up around profession of faith, that that what that meant was to be able to come and to give exact theological answers uh, to some pretty difficult questions um, before you could make profession of faith. And this this scared a lot of people away, naturally, because they were intimidated by that. They, you know, they may have known that Jesus died on the cross for their sins, but they they weren't able to articulate that in any specific way. Um, Another thing that happened is there was sort of a legalistic aspect of it that that grew up around the supper, where there was this sense that I had to have surrendered all to Jesus. I have to be living the perfected Christian life before I can come and and make profession of faith. And and what what you had is you had young people who who were struggling with sin and who were wondering to themselves, like, how can I go and make profession of faith when I know in my heart of hearts that I might actually love this sin more than Jesus? (laughs) So I don't know, I don't know how I can do that, right? And so, so there was this, uh, this uh, um, sense that, that I have to be living the victorious Christian life before I can make profession of faith. And so what ended up happening because of that is it pushed professions of faith 
back into like late teens, 20s, and sometimes even 30s. And so one of the solutions uh, to that process um, was to let children who do have true faith come to the table. Yes, their faith is a tiny little bud of faith, but they know Jesus died for them. They have childlike faith. They really do want to live for him. And since communion is a sacrament that feeds and nourishes our faith, a legitimate solution to this problem is to have these children come and partake of the sacrament without making them do this complicated profession of faith process that they're just not able to do yet. And as we've seen, this is a meal for the church, and baptized children are part of the church. And so essentially, that's the reason that Emmanuel Church and several other uh, Christian Reformed churches began inviting children to the table. And I must admit, as a youth pastor, one thing I ran into is I knew these, these high school students, they believed that Jesus died for them. They were hungering and thirsting for righteousness. They, they were sorry for their sins, truly repentant, wanting to commit to the church, but they were terrified of, of having to answer questions they didn't feel like they could answer, and they just didn't know how to resolve the tension between their ongoing sinfulness and what it seemed like profession of faith required. And so they would refuse to make profession of faith, and my heart would break for them. So there was a real and legitimate problem that inviting children to the table was intended to solve. Yet, as we talked through it as elders, uh, there were other unintended consequences of inviting children to the table. So part of what happens when a person makes profession of faith is they also make a commitment to the church as well. And so when you invite children to the table before they make a profession of faith, you end up in this situation where you have, uh, you have a, um, someone who is receiving the benefits of full membership in the church without a corresponding level of commitment. And you would find now, 10 years later, that in the churches, the CRC churches that did invite children to the table, uh, the numbers of professions of faith have dipped dramatically in those churches um, because there's no more incentive now um, for them to come and make profession of faith. The other problem, as we've seen, the elders are the ones who are charged with responsibility of determining who has God's approval. The elders are the ones who are supposed to shepherd the flock of God, which means they are the ones who have the responsibility to make sure a person's life and doctrine are consistent with the faith once and for all handed down to the saints. But because the children are coming to the table have never made profession of faith before the elders, the elders found themselves in a situation where they didn't know who was who, and when a younger child would come to the table, uh, they would think to themselves, well, that child hasn't gone through the class with Pastor Ken yet, but I don't know for sure. And so you just kind of end up in this muddy sort of middle ground where, where it's hard, hard to know who is who. And, and really what ends up happening is everybody just ends up coming to the table. And so for communion to be taken properly, as we've seen, it must be taken as a church. And children are part of the church but it also must be taken with proper respect for what it is. And the elders of the church are the ones who are charged with the task of making sure that everyone who comes to the table is somebody who is able to take it with a proper respect for what it is. So the previous pastors, they taught a class along with the parents, and they really did make sure that these children had true faith. They really did. 
But the elders did not know who had gone through that class, and that was difficult for them. So we put our heads together. We came up with another way of solving the problem. So we do believe that it needs to go back to a one-step process, where people make profession of faith before they come to the table. However, profession of faith does not need to require uh, the ability to write a theological dissertation. Amen? We believe that profession of faith is essentially three things. Does this person know that Jesus lived and died and rose again to save them from their sins? Okay. Is this person truly sorry for their sins and do they long to live a life that is pleasing to Jesus? Okay. Is this person ready to commit to the life of this church? Now, they're not committing um, to the life of the church uh, with a full breadth of understanding of what it means to commit to the life of the church. But I remember when I got married, I committed without having a full breadth of understanding of what it meant to commit. And so all of us are going to commit to something without totally understanding all that we're committing to, but that's part of the process. Even us as um, adults sometimes don't fully understand what it means to be fully committed to this church. And so we just ask them to join us a bit younger in the process of figuring out all that it entails uh, to be a committed member of this church. And our sense is that someone who is 10 or 11 years old should be able to do this. Um, we also believe that there is value in there being time between the child graduates from children in worship before they make a profession of faith, where they watch their older brothers and sisters partake of the sacrament, they watch their parents partake of it, and yet they um, do not. Because when you put a boundary around something, you actually increase the value of what that thing is. Uh, think about the Almond Blossom Carnival. Four-year-olds go, and they are too short to ride on the ride. Right? They come back the next year, and they're five, and they're still too short to ride on the ride. But that next year, when they come back after COVID, after it's been two years, and they're finally tall enough to ride on that ride, they are going to be infinitely more excited to ride on that ride. Think about the person who wants to be on the basketball team, and they get cut from uh, tryouts, and they work hard and work hard and work hard and work hard and come back and get cut again. Work hard, work hard, work hard, come back, and they make the team. Even if they're not a starter, that person appreciates being on the team infinitely more simply because there is a boundary around what it means to be on that team. Let me tell you guys a story. Um, so in 2019 and 2021, uh, I, I took a group from Escalon down to Compton uh, on a missions trip. And my friend Jonathan, who I went to seminary with, uh, he has a ministry down there that is strikingly similar uh, to Martin's ministry up in Weston Ranch. And so when we were down there, uh, we met this uh, boy named Jay Sean. Uh, Jay Sean's parents were the drug dealers who lived across the street from Jonathan. And Jay Sean was really hard to love. Uh, he was ornery. He was disrespectful. Uh, he would come and he would take our VBS stuff and he would just kind of ruin it. And, and we loved him. We loved him uh, well, as difficult as it was. 2020, we took the year off. 2021, we go back again. On the first Sunday, Jonathan asked me, he says, hey, would you, would you preside over communion for our congregation? And, uh, and I said, well, let me just ask you, uh, do you guys have defined church leaders who, who know who is invited to the table and who is not? And he says, yes, we do, no problem. I said, okay, great. Uh, and do you mind if when I preside over communion, I, I am clear that this meal is only for those who have true faith? 
He says, yes, no problem. Okay. So I stood up there and I, and I said all those things that you, you you'd hear me say here on a normal Sunday morning. And, and I said, and if you do not have true faith, and this meal is not for you. Well, Jay Sean was there. And Jay Sean heard this meal is not for him. <laughs> and Jay Sean wanted that meal. And so after that service, Jay Sean goes up to Jonathan and he says, what do I got to do? I want to be a part. <laughs> so the irony is, by excluding him, we invited him in. <laughs> right? And that doesn't go with our modern mind. Our modern mind says, no, everybody needs to be a part. No, this is something. This is something. And there is a kind of belief that you have to have to be a part of it. And it looks a certain way if you believe that. And by drawing those lines, it feels like we're excluding people, but really we're making something clear that they can be a part of. And so Jonathan ended up having this gospel conversation with Jay Sean that he had never been able to have before, simply because of that moment. Let me tell you another story. January 2nd of this year, Zach Dewey is here serving communion. Uh, and my son is the only being in this room who does not come forward for communion. He's 10 years old. And I'm sitting with him during communion for the very first time, and he, he's bugging me. Dad, why can't I? Why can't I? Why can't I? Why can't I? And I said, I'll talk to you better after. I'll talk to, you better after. I'll talk to you better after. We get in the car to drive home. And I say, Hudson, do you believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sins? Yeah, I do. I said, are you truly sorry for your sins? And do you want to live a life that's pleasing to him? Hudson said, well, uh, and that's cool because he's 10, right? I trust that God's going to keep his promises to Hudson. But what that told me is he still needs a little bit more time. And every time he sits here and is excluded from the meal, it creates the opportunity for him and I to have that conversation. And that conversation is so important. And so what we want to do as a church is we want to create that opportunity for them to be able to understand what this meal is, for them to be able to truly discern the body. And that simply takes time. But we don't want to wait until they're 16 and, and now they're in the throes of struggling with their sinful nature and they're totally just confused about how I can be a Christian and yet be this sinful, right? No, when, when there's that true childlike faith. So what we're going to do, here's, our, here's what we're going to do going forward. We're going to fast from communion in the, book, in the, in the uh, month of February. We're going to have uh, town halls on the, on the first Sunday and the third Sunday of February. Um, the people who are invited primarily, well, everyone's invited, but, but our primary audience we have in mind is uh, parents of children uh, who've not made profession of faith or who are in children, well, actually all parents of all children. And then you uh, older children who, who have already been coming to the table uh, but have not yet made profession of faith. Uh, we would love for you to come and to ask questions and to dialogue with us about this and, and what the decision process is. And I know I promised I wouldn't change anything for the first year, um, but I couldn't, I couldn't, given everything I've taught the last three weeks, I couldn't teach the class that Ken taught. And so, so in order to be able to communicate all this, and plus as we as elders started talking about it, uh, we were all on the same page with this. 
uh, for all the reasons that, that I've laid out. And, and so this was something that had to be communicated before that next class would ordinarily have come up because the children who are graduating from Children in Worship now, they will be the first group um, that will go through that experience of, of being excluded from the table. Um, and, and our prayer is that it would not be for long and that they would have those gospel conversations with their parents uh, that we are trusting that this new process will invite them into. So that's who's invited uh, to, to that um, uh, uh, town hall. I uh, uh, kind of got off my notes here, so I'm not sure what else I need to say. Oh, here's the other thing. For those who have already gone under the previous process, they're still free to come to the table. There, there's no one who's been invited to the table who's now going to be excluded uh, from the table. Um, and, and the reason is, is because th- their faith had been uh, under the old process. It was determined this person has true faith, and they're free to come to the table. And so, so we're not uh, uh, dishonoring the process that came before at all. Um, but we are going to encourage those who have been invited to the table to go ahead and make a profession of faith. Uh, so I'm going to offer as many professional faith classes as I have to, uh, starting in March, uh, to, 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 um, to, to bring them through that uh, process and, and to make them full communicant members of the church and to have them commit to the church as the church is committed to them. Um, but, but if you as a parent don't want your children to go through that just yet, that's fine. There, there's no heavy-handedness with any of this. Um, we trust that God will continue to work uh, in, in the ways that, that, that he works um, and so we believe this process will do uh, two things. By encouraging a culture where young people make profession of faith early and often, we will be in a situation where they, feel, where they do not feel alienated from the church as they grow up, nor will we be denying the sacrament to those who have true faith. Uh, and then still, by, main, my, by maintaining a standard, we will be able to more clearly define the church as those who believe the faith once and for all handed down to the saints. Okay? Uh, and then we'll be able to have a, a thick, meaningful uh, church membership uh, at our church. Uh, and so finally, as we learned today, there is a proper way for the church to practice the Lord's Supper. And this allows the elders of the church to be the ones overseeing that process directly, as they are called to do, and as they are uniquely responsible before God to do. And we also believe that it will create a more thick culture of church membership here at Emmanuel Church. Um, myself and the elders are all available, and the deacons even, they're in on this. They're, we're all available to talk about this after church if you have questions. Um, and then obviously come to the um, uh, town hall in February as well. So let's, uh, let's close in prayer. Father, we are so grateful for your word and how clear it is. As we studied this passage, Father, we saw that this meal is for the church. We saw that there are those who have God's approval and those who do not. And we know from other passages that the elders are the ones called to sort out those differences. And so we thank you for that. We thank you for your clear instructions to us for how we ought to conduct ourselves as the church. And then, Father, we thank you for your clear instructions to us as well as how we ought to conduct ourselves in terms of the Lord's Supper. We ought to have a proper respect for what it is. And yet we ought to celebrate what it is because it represents the grace and the mercy that you have shown us in Christ. We thank you for your love and for your faithfulness. In Jesus' name, amen.